Welcome back to our study of the book of Hebrews. Um, we're into chapter 8 now, and chapter 7 was pretty heavy stuff. Uh, really, 5, 6, and 7, because we're getting into some of the deeper parts of what makes Jesus superior and the Christian age that he ushers in superior to the old law and the old way of doing things. I'll stress again as we read Hebrews that it is important to understand the purpose of the author's writing here. And when I say writing, um, we're not sure who wrote it, and we're not really sure the circumstances of the writing, though we're pretty sure on the date of the writing, um, this was maybe not originally something written down. Many times in the early church, in the first century, there were letters and there were transcripts of sermons even that were passed around amongst Christians. Uh, they didn't have uh, or consider scripture the same way we do. We consider if it's in these books, in this Bible, that's scripture. They looked at scripture differently. There were important writings that they passed around and they talked about and they referenced with one another. And uh, Hebrews may very well have been a sermon that was transcribed. There are several letters, even Paul's letters, that are that way. Uh, some of them almost ha are like form letters where he inserts a name of a, of a place or a congregation or an audience uh, but um, but it seems like pretty standard stuff. So uh, I want to understand the context of the writing here. This is probably something someone heard, wrote down, and then passed it around. But it was so important and so critical because in this story we have of God's relationship with mankind, we have a story where God uh, builds a, a, chooses a people, the Israelites, builds a system of law in order that they might have peace, be safe and healthy, and that he could fulfill a promise that was coming, which was uh, the land of Canaan, the promised land, where they would dwell. And all along the way, it was evident, became evident, as we read it over the, the arc of that history, that they couldn't keep that law, that they were constantly failing and struggling because of their inability to keep the law. So God moved to bring Christ to earth, not as a response, but as an intention from the beginning of time. Now, when you see it that way, sometimes we look at it as, well, the, the Israelites couldn't keep the old law, so he, he, he delivers Christ to the earth, and then all people can be saved through Christ, and that was what he had to do because we couldn't keep the law. No, uh, when you look at it the other way, that, that Jesus was always the purpose and always the intention, then you see that his arrival is not the result of the inability to keep the law, but the law itself was meant to highlight our inability. The old law, and Paul writes about this extensively in like in Romans and in other places, the purpose of the law really was to demonstrate what sin was and the failings of humanity, to create a hopelessness and a helplessness. Not that God wants to beat us down and make us feel hopeless, but that he needs us to understand and have a degree of humility in admitting we are powerless. We are powerless against sin. We do not hold the ability and the power to defeat sin. Therefore, uh, we need a savior, and Jesus is the answer to that. And what the author in Hebrews, or the speaker, is, is trying to convey to an audience of Jewish people, Jewish Christians, is that when Jesus comes, he doesn't simply come with a, a sacrifice or, or an entry point into heaven. He doesn't come simply to um, cleanse us of sin, that we can go on following this old law. He comes to uh, rewrite the law, rewrite the relationship between God and man. 
this is, uh, we're, we're restructuring a contract, okay? We had a contract with God. Keep the law, receive the reward. We couldn't keep our end of the bargain. And so what happens? Jesus comes and delivers a new contract. And that new contract says, believe in me and you receive the reward. Just believe in me. And, and in believing in, in me, that is Christ, keep the will of the Lord in your heart. And, and the author of Hebrews is building this case, as I've said before, to help that audience understand that you cannot take Christ and still hold on to the law. You can't accept Jesus and still cling to something that is obsolete. That word's going to come up again, okay? And he builds that case by pointing out things often found in Old Testament scripture that point the way to Jesus. He's revealing that Jesus was there in the old law all along and that the law had a purpose, but its purpose has expired. Jesus comes. He is superior to the angels. He's a better lawgiver than Moses. He offers a rest which is superior to Canaan, that is in heaven, a, a true Sabbath rest. And then chapter 5 introduces the idea, really in chapter 4, at the end introduces the idea that Jesus is a high priest. This very important role served in the old law by these priests, that they were held up as the standard for righteousness. But Jesus is himself a high priest. And he builds that case throughout 5, 6, and 7, and then when we get to the end of seven, he says, okay, I think I've convinced you that Jesus is a high priest. He's a superior high priest to the Levites. He's a new high priest. Well, what are the implications of that? If we have a new high priest, he says, then that means the law has changed because every time they change the structure of their priesthood, I don't mean the high priest specifically. I mean, any, then when they move from the, the family of Aaron being the family of the priest to the tribe of Levi, there was a law introduced to make that happen. There was a change in the law. Well, now if we're moving from the Levitical priest, and based on the argument he makes in chapter 7 about Melchizedek and Abraham, and you can go back and watch that video to get more in-depth on that, but based on chapter 7, Jesus is, in fact, a greater high priest and a high priest forever and, and, and superior to the Levites. If that's true, he says at the end of chapter 7, then that means we have a new law in place. All right, well, we have a new law then. So let's go to chapter 8. And the author there says, Now the point of what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Okay, so remember, early on they had a tabernacle, a tent of meeting, and the meeting that occurred there was God and man. The priest would enter into the most holy place, offer the sacrifices, interact with God on behalf of the people. And the author here is saying Jesus also enters into a holy place, not the one of the tabernacle or the temple, which they later had, but the true holy place, the true tent of meeting. And that's in heaven, in the throne room of God. Jesus dwells in the throne room of God. He says it here. We read in Revelation, that's clearly the image that John uh, paints for us, the lamb at the throne. Jesus is in the throne room of God as we speak, and he speaks on our behalf. He intercedes for us. He mediates. Uh, he carries our words, our needs to God, to the ear of the Most High. What a beautiful image that is. And I would also stress, um, I break these lessons up by chapter. 
other people have broken up the Bible into chapters and verses. That makes it more of a reference book in that sense. But in its original writing, there were no verses or chapters. It wasn't even punctuation in a lot of it. We've had to figure some of that out. Okay, that's why Paul's sentences go on for ages when you read his letters. Because we've had to figure out where the punctuation goes, where the divisions go. And we certainly invented chapter headings and paragraph headings, which you'll find in some versions of Scripture. It's important to read these things in context. So go back and read chapter 7 and go straight through chapter 8. If you can find a Bible, and they print many different kinds of them, that does not have chapter and verse divisions, I would encourage that. It may not be as useful for study and preparation, but it's very nice if you're just reading to read, and that's an important thing to do too. So if you're going to read to read, then I would get one without chapters and verses. makes it much, much easier to understand the concepts when we're not breaking things up. So he's saying all that we've said about Jesus and proving the point that Jesus is a high priest, like Melchizedek was a high priest, that he's superior to the Levitical priests, that he does something they could not do while still doing the things that they did very well. Uh, and again, what they did well was they were human. They understood mankind. What they didn't do well was righteousness. Uh, and what the law didn't do well was forgiveness. Jesus fixes that. He is righteous because he's the son of God. He is the perfect sacrifice and the maker of the sacrifice and in some ways the recipient of that sacrifice. And so all of that thing combined, all of those things combined, and in the final paragraph of chapter 7, he says, well, that means that we have a new law. That means that something has changed about our interaction with God. So the point of that, he says in chapter 8, is that we have this great high priest, a superior high priest. And that means he's somewhere with the Lord in a true tent, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. It's not an earthly tabernacle. It's not an earthly temple. It's heaven. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if it were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So if this was on earth, this were happening on earth, he's not, he's not offering the gifts that the priests are ordained to offer. He's doing something different. This is happening in the heavenly realms. Uh, the, there are priests, uh, again, the end of verse 4, that offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Okay, this is important. Everything about the Old Testament, and, and, and I don't know where you're at with how you see the Old Testament, but this is one of the harder things to grasp and one of the most important things that we can explain when we talk about Scripture. What is the Old Testament and why do we have it? Um, you, you may have, um, at some point in your life, if you've grown up around church or something, maybe at VBS or whatever, they hand out the little, the little Gideon Bibles, and it's just a New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs, Okay. Um, I always thought that was interesting. The, the New Testament and then the poetry of the Old Testament. Um, nothing else about the Old Testament. And we grow up, if you've grown up in Protestant churches particularly, you kind of grow up, not just Protestant, but if you grow up in, in, in Christian churches, okay? I'm talking about my faith tradition. You almost get the idea that the Old Testament stuff isn't that important. That the Old Testament stuff is kind of hard to understand and it's kind of weird and we don't follow that law. So it's just history. It's just some good stories about things God did. That's not really the fullness of the Old Testament. It's not even close. 
and it really sells the Old Testament short if we, if we don't think of it as a part of the whole story. Uh, if we don't consider it as, um, if we consider it as simply history or good stories, we really miss a lot of depth of what Jesus did. You can't fully appreciate what Jesus did unless you understand. Because if it's just, well, Jesus died for my sins, but why does that work? That works because sacrifice and the shedding of blood is necessary and required where there is sin. We understand that concept from the Old Testament the same way the Israelites were made to understand that concept. So when Jesus came and offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people to cleanse sin, it has significance. We miss that significance if we don't dive in to the Old Testament, okay? So very important stuff. Uh, and so this verse five, that what they serve, that is the, the, the high priests of the, of the old law, is a copy and a shadow. Now that word comes up a lot in some of the New Testament explanations um, about the Old Testament, particularly in Hebrews. All right, this um, skia, I believe is the word, which is a, a, a shadow or a copy of what is to come. And I may have my Greek wrong there, but I think that's what it is um, off the top of my head. Um, this is a shadow. This is, a, this is something that stands in the place of. It's a concept. It's a copy. It's an image. It's not the real thing yet but it is simply a, a meant to represent something. Think about what a shadow is. Um, I, we have, I have a video, I still have it on my phone somewhere, I can go find it, of our, our oldest child when she would have been about two, two and a half years old and she kind of realizes, becomes aware of this concept of a shadow. And she's out on a sunny day on the sidewalk and she sees her shadow and it scares her because she's trying to run from it and it keeps following her. Because is that shadow on the ground my daughter? No, it's not. But it is a representation of my daughter. It is the effect of what happens when my daughter stands and blocks the sunlight in this little piece of concrete. A shadow is a representation. It is a shape. It is not the real thing, and it is not even always an accurate depiction of the real thing, but it is the effect of the real thing and a representation. We can get some idea of some truth, reality, by looking at a shadow. Look at sundials. Sundial is one of the most ancient of methods of, of keeping time, constructing some concept of time. And it's done by a stationary object that the sun will shine on and impact based on its positioning. So we're able to d d discern some truth and reality based on a representation of something not the real thing itself. The same is true of the old law. This is the concept that makes all of Hebrews work. The old law is not useless, it is not unimportant, and it is not just good stories and history. The old law helps us to understand conceptually the gospel and the story of Jesus and what he did. And Hebrews is trying to tie those two things together. So it's a beautiful book in that regard, a beautiful letter or sermon in that regard, because he's built upon layer upon layer of arguing that Jesus is superior for all these reasons, most often references to the Old Testament. Now he's convinced the audience that he, Jesus is in fact a high priest, and that means there's a new law, and here's why that matters. Because what the old law did was just a shadow. It was never meant to be the final product. It was just showing us a truth, a reality, 
that was somewhere else. When we look at the old law and we look at Moses and we look at the priests and we look at the sacrifices and we look at the temple or the tabernacle, what do we see? If all you see is the law and the priest and Moses and the tabernacle and the temple, you've missed the point. And many Israelites, many Jews did. That's why they didn't accept Christ in his time. But when you understand that it's just a shadow, it's just a representation, it's just something to inform us about the reality, and the reality is Christ. The truth is Jesus. The law is a representation of truth. They serve, the high priest serve, verse 5, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Mo And here's a reason. He's going to give a reason now. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now sometimes we look at this verse and say, Ah, uh, and some people, preachers and, and the like, will look at it and say, aha, this is evidence that God has a pattern in mind and he expects us to keep it perfectly. Well, don't take this verse and try to make this instruction that God wants us to do everything in a specific way that you happen to define uh, because it's very convenient that we all think we've got it right, right? So we've got to take ourselves out of this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the reason God told Moses to do it a specific way and the reason that pattern existed was because what Moses was building was something that would later help people define who Christ was and what Christ would do. So if God says, I need you to build this tabernacle and it's got to have this holy place and this most holy place and there's these things in here and those things in there and this is how it'll be used and Moses said, I think I'll do it the way I want. Then the whole pattern, copy, shadow that would inform the people and help us to understand Jesus would not have worked. He had to do it exactly the right way. And the author says the reason God had Moses do it exactly the right way was because God had a message to deliver in that tent, in that structure, in that building. And that message would have been lost if Moses had done it his way. So God told him to do it exactly right so that we could see it and understand it because it was meant to be a representation, an allegory in some ways, to our relationship with God. But as it is, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old uh, as the covenant. He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So God tells Moses, build it this way. Moses builds it that way. We can look at that and understand who Jesus is and what he does for us. And then Jesus comes along, he has a better promise and a better covenant, and he is the mediator of that covenant. He stands between us and God as our defense, as our salvation. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If there was nothing wrong with the Old Testament, we wouldn't have had a New Testament. If there was nothing wrong with the Old Law, we wouldn't have had a New Law. If nothing was faulty, and when we say this, we're not saying God designed something faulty, but he designed something for a purpose, and its purpose was to be found faulty. The purpose of the Old Covenant was to be found to have flaw because it helped us to understand that we were weak. Verse 8, for, the, uh, for he finds fault with them when he says, and this is Old Testament language here that we're going to, that we're going to look at, all right? He finds fault. Uh, with him when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. So already he says, guys, 
in the, in the, in the scripture you already know. God was saying that I am going to bring about a new covenant. Why was God talking about a new covenant if the old covenant was meant to last forever? See, they've got in their mind, they've looked at the copy in the shadow and thought that was reality. When in fact God himself was saying, I'm, I've got a new covenant to bring to you. I've got a new thing I'm going to deliver. Why was God looking for a new covenant if the old one was good and perfect? This is the point, that it wasn't. And these listeners have to accept that in order to let go of it and fully embrace Jesus Christ. Um, end of verse 9 here. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. He says they couldn't keep it, but I've got a new covenant coming, and it's not going to be on stone tablets, and it's not going to be on ancient scrolls. My law is going to be their hearts and minds. My law is going to dwell within them. This is no longer a transactional, external relationship with God. This is a grace-filled, internal relationship with God that we're in. And they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the last of them, or excuse me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He's talking about their failure to keep a covenant, but he ends the passage by saying, I'm going to be full of grace. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that something? Knows the time when someone starts talking about how you haven't kept your end of a bargain, there's consequences at the end of that statement. He says they haven't kept their end of the bargain. So I'm going to do something different that's going to be full of grace, not punishment. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old law, the, 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 the rigorous burden of perfection that is unachievable, in many ways is unfair to people as weak as we are, that's gone. Isn't that a cause for celebration? Isn't that joy? Isn't that beautiful? The old one is obsolete. It's growing old. It's going to vanish away. God looked down on us and said, I'm going to give you something you can't keep so you will understand how weak you are. And then I will give you something that will last forever to show you how much I love you and how strong I am. God is a wonderful, wise, loving God. And we live under a covenant of mercy and grace and love and we dwell in, a, in a, a life of joy, looking forward to a new life full of worship and praise. Because he loved us, he gave us a new covenant. Chapter 8 is a beautiful chapter that summarizes really the first half of the book of, of Hebrews, which is all about why Jesus is better. As we continue on from here, and we have uh, you know five or six chapters left, we're going to get into a little bit more of the deeper stuff about the importance of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and why it works, and then some other things about how we ought to live in response to it. We'll talk about that next time. Thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to seeing you then.